Well, this week, uh, our message comes from 1 Timothy, and it's specifically going to be chapter 6 that we're looking at. Uh, and what I wanted to do this week as we dive into it is just, just to read through uh, much of that chapter together before we begin, just so we're all on the same page and we're working together through this. So I'm just going to read it. It'll be on the screen so you can follow along or you can jump into your physical or digital Bible. Uh, I usually will be reading from the ESV version, unless otherwise stated on the screen. It'll have in brackets afterwards if I change that, but I'm reading from the ESV nine times out of ten. So let's, uh, let's begin and read. Teach and, and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor in eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irre irreverent 
babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. God, as we dig into this chapter of scripture, in our three-year-long journey through scripture, may your, your spirit lead us and guide us. May you cause us to reflect on our lives as we reflect on the lives of those that have gone before us, that you spoke directly to with your holy scripture. You've given us your word to guide us and to lead us. So may we apply today to our lives so that we can live in godliness and with contentment. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, this letter was written by Paul to Timothy, who was a young church leader that Paul was mentoring. And he was really more of a spiritual son to Paul. He was, Paul was deeply invested in his life, and he had left him in charge of a church in a city that we are familiar with because we've been discussing it uh, in the last few weeks. And the church was Ephesus. It was the very city that Paul said would face struggles to maintain their faith and that we read about that they lost their first love in that fight, didn't they? It makes sense then that Paul's letter to Timothy in regards to where he has placed him would carry a similar tone to his letter to the Ephesian church. Both the church and its young leader would make, I would have to have some contending to do there. There was some fighting that they would do they would need to fight amidst uh, opposition, temptation, and competing influences. And so for us to properly understand and apply scripture, what we do is we always need to understand it in its context as best we can. What did this mean for the people that it was meant for? What did this mean for T Timothy in the church setting that he was in? And then from there, we extrapolate meaning for the message to us, because then we can learn who God is in their circumstances and how he's going to be in ours. And why is this important? Because we have lots of our own fights that we are battling, don't we? We have lots of battles that we find ourselves in daily. There's lots of contentious issues that might pull us from the text here and, and lead us astray. We might look at things in there and go fight the good fight and go, oh yeah, I'm all about the fight. I'm all about the fight. But we read it in a way that maybe it's not meant to be. So when Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is that good fight? So for us today, I think there's two opening questions that we wanna wrestle with as we continue through. How do you pick a good fight? When he says fight the good fight, what fight is that fight? And what does winning that fight look like? How do you know when you really won a fight? And some of you may be the type that want nothing to do with fighting. As soon as I start talking about you fighting and your energy level just drains already. You're just like, oh, I don't want to fight. No, I'm, it's all about the peace, all about the love. 
no fighting, please. I don't want to be in contentious places. I don't want to be arguing and I don't want to be at things. That may be some of you. And others of you, you're ready to be like, grab your swords and go, right? Because you believe that there's something worth fighting for and you're willing to do what it takes to fight for it, right? There's both sides to how we do this. But I think that there's somewhere in the middle, that truth lies somewhere in the middle. Complacency isn't the way of Jesus. Avoiding fights at all costs isn't necessarily the way of Jesus. But neither is militancy. Neither is going, if there's a fight, I need to be in it. If there's, if there's a battle waging, I need to be a part of that. If there's something that doesn't look right or doesn't smell the, the, the smell test, it doesn't pass the smell test, then I need to go and I need to resolve that issue. Maybe somewhere in the middle is where God wants us to land. We can pick good fights, but be left with a losing outcome, can't we? I think we've all probably picked a fight that we thought was a righteous and good fight, but at the end of it, we're like, I don't think I won in the long run. I think I lost in the long run on this one. We may do that. So how, we may get statements right about our faith. We may get that, even as a church, we may get all our fundamental statements of truth about what we believe and how we want to live as a church. We may get those things right. We may get our ideology right. But have it wrong. But we shouldn't do it, again, like the Ephesian church, at the loss of our first love, at the loss of what was most important. Because that's what the Ephesians would be accused of later in Revelation, which we looked at a few weeks ago, being a church that is a mess because they fought good fights, but they lost the one that mattered most. As with most of Paul's letters, in, he writes in 1 Timothy, how following Jesus and trusting the gospel leads to transformational change. It transformationally changes the lives who genuinely believe it and follow Jesus. Because Jesus is supposed to be at the center of everything. Life comes from him and revolves around him. That's what Paul was talking about in chapter six there, where in the middle of giving instructions, he starts talking about Christ and he gets lost in it and starts glorifying Christ and talking about his eternal and set apart nature. He can't help himself because his life comes from, revolves around and is centered in Christ and Christ alone. Paul warns Timothy in this letter that, the, that in the church, there is true and false teaching. And so he needs to pray for people, all the people that are in the church. And Paul lovingly weaves together a tapestry of personal advice for Timothy, church leadership advice and church practice. He switches in and out of one and into the other. He'll be, Timothy, you need to be like this. And this is how you'd pick an elder. And then Timothy, you really need to be like this. And this is what it should look like in your worship service. He flows in and out of those things as he mentors Timothy in leading the Ephesian church. And then Paul admonishes Timothy to do something really powerful. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies pre previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. He 
St. Timothy, there are revealed plans and purposes for your life by God that in Christ you are to be in. So fight the good fight for them. Because if you don't fight for those things, your faith will be shipwrecked. And Paul says, fight the good fight. What does he mean by that? Why does he use that particular phrase a number of times in this book? Paul is borrowing a common term in that cultural time frame. And that was, it was revolved around the need for men to go and fight for their country, to fight battles and wars on behalf of their country, to enlist and serve in that capacity. Because in Roman culture at the time, it was considered honorable. It was considered the right thing to do to engage in battle on behalf of your country. It was absolutely necessary if you wanted to engage in public life, if you sought office in public life, you wanted to be part of the city structure that, that was cared for, you needed to serve in the military before you could enter public service. And so if you wanted to raise your standing and become something of yourself in society, it was absolutely necessary to enlist and fight the good fight, to serve your country. Paul, though, puts it in the context of faith. That it is honorable, that it is right, that it is necessary to pick up this battle in our lives because our faith determines our outcome. Shipwrecked versus taking hold of eternal life. What we think and what we believe about God, the Bible, the church, and reality is a large part of that battle. It is half the battle that Timothy and Ephesus were, would face. Because remember what we read in, in verse 3, it said, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness. If somebody doesn't do that, if they're teaching something different, listen, though. Contending for the singular gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a necessary fight for the church. That there's nothing else that you need other than to claim Christ as your life. That you are dead in your sin and there's no way to get out of it except through Christ. If we add anything to that to gain salvation, then we are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because all he said is, if anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me, then they are saved. If anyone calls on the name of the Lord, then they will be saved. Sometimes we cheapen that with how we present the gospel. We say, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, we say, we mean that, go, if you pray a prayer at one point in your life and you say, Jesus, I want to give you my life. You are the Lord of my life. From this point forward, I am yours. We think that is our insurance policy that covers us for the rest of our lives. We think that that just covers it and it's all done and signed and sealed. There's nothing we can do. We're safe. That's just not what he means by calls on the name of the Lord. When he says, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they're saying, if anyone says my life is only in you, Jesus, I have nothing apart from you, Jesus. We fight for that. A different doctrine is not a, a disagreement about secondary issues. It's not a disagreement about secondary issues. 
It's not about how many times we do communion versus something else. It's not about how we baptize people in a hot tub versus down at a river or in a, a special tank built on stage. It's not about those things. Those are secondary issues. It's not about the types of songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. It's not that most of our musicians are actually digitally recorded and used by us and we only have a keyboard player and a guitar player and a drum set that nobody's playing right now. But in Jesus' name, somebody here or yet to come in is going to start playing those drums. And the bass that I've got in the back, we're going to have a full band in Jesus' name. But right now, we have half of our musicians are pre-recorded and on a loop. It doesn't matter that that's how we do it. Those are all secondary issues. It doesn't really matter. We, do, we, we fight for the, the things that are most important the doctrines of the Trinity, that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't leave that. We don't leave the fact that Scripture is the revealed Word of God for us by God Himself. We don't leave the fact that God is Creator. We don't leave the fact that we reflect the image of God. Every single person on earth is an image bearer of God and therefore has value because of that. We don't, we don't neglect or leave the fact of who Jesus is to us, his work in the person of Jesus. We don't leave the fact that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in the life of the church in every Christian. We don't leave the fact that the church is Christ's body that it is a high value, that the church is not just a loose association of people, but it is the body of Christ. He is the head, we are the body, and we hold the body of Christ sacred, just as we would if he was present here right now. We would not leave his head alone, but damage his body, disrespect his body, and not have no regard for his body. We would treat his body the same way we would treat his head. And we treat the body of Christ the same way. We believe that Jesus will return. We believe that he will come back for us. Those are doctrines that we do not stray from. We do not mess with those. We hold true to them. And all of that, when you get into the nitty gritty of it and you try to wrestle with it, that's just theology. That's just trying to understand God and who he is. But here's the thing. Every single one of us is a theologian. Whether you think of yourself as that or not, it doesn't matter. You're a theologian. You know why? Because you have a belief about God. One way or the other, you have a belief about God. No different than the fact that every single one of you is a steward. The question isn't not, is not whether you are or aren't one. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Are you a good theologian or a bad theologian? Are you a good steward of all the resources God has given you or a bad one? You are a theologian and you are a steward. So Paul says to a young leader, given a bit of time, those who don't keep theological acuity in following Jesus begin to display certain symptoms. They say he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
Have you ever tried to talk to somebody about theology and they're like, nope, shut off. I know what I'm talking about. I will not, in humility, listen to a different perspective on theology. Puffed up, unwilling to listen. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Have you ever been around a a follower of Jesus? This isn't talking about non-Christians here, but Christians who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. They go out of their way to look for controversy, to talk about it and to to get in there and just like, ah, about it. There's something about what they're making the main thing that is an issue. They look for quarrels about words. And what do those quarrels usually bring about? Do they bring about resolution, reconciliation, wholeness in the church? No, they usually bring about envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people. We've all encountered people in the church who live this way, who think that this is the right way of living out their faith. But Paul says that they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Their central identifier is a life without peace. Always discontent because their allegiance is with the enemy and not with God. They either unwittingly or with purpose make truth in God's people the enemy so that the real enemy is never addressed. This again, this is not a warning against people who do not trust or or follow Jesus. This is a warning against those who are immature or struggling to follow Jesus. This is a warning against those who have departed from the faith and in deception believe that they are still following God. Their faith isn't in Christ Jesus anymore. Their faith is in their structures, their systems, their way of doing things. It's in their solid standing, not in Christ and in Christ alone. Verse 6 to 10, it says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is a cool word there. Godliness with contentment. Contentment seems the opposite of another word for me. Coveting. Right? Godliness with contentment is of great gain versus trying to be godly but having covetousness. Desiring other things that are not yours or you don't have. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I confess, I confess that there's often times in life that that's not my standard of living. That that's not what I feel happy with. Do I have food on my plate and clothes on my body? I'm okay. That there's often times where I'm like, you know what? My car's not doing really well. I wish I had a better car. There's, there's times where I'm like, man, costs a lot to heat my house. Maybe I should look at doing something different. Man, it looks like this. And my, my attention goes from being content with food and clothing to worrying about all these other things. Does it mean that those things aren't things that you need to actually worry about in life? No, you actually have to worry about those things. But when they draw my contentment away, when there's no more contentment with what I have because I need something else to be content, something else is taking that place 
of contentment. That godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm losing my gain when I get lost in those things. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Faith is a tricky word there. What do we mean by faith? Faith can often have a couple meanings. We interchange its meaning between the faith, meaning just Christianity, uh, to faith, meaning trust and confidence in something or someone. And remember, this is the one thing that the church in Ephesus gets wrong. It loses its first love. And I'd suggest that for Paul and Timothy, faith in this instance isn't just Christianity. It isn't just the idea of religion or practicing the disciplines of faith per se. Faith in this instance uh, is that people are wandering away from their trust and their confidence in Christ Jesus, in God. And as they begin to desire other things, their contentment in God is diminished. Anytime that we desire things, put our trust in things, we are exchanging them for God. And we are clear from the Ten Commandments, right from the Ten Commandments, the first one is, thou shalt no other idols before me. And then bookending that is, thou shalt not covet. From beginning to end of the commandments, keeping our eyes solely on God and contentment in him and what he has given us is key. Coveting is a loss of contentment in God with a corresponding rise of desire for other things besides God. Or inversely, as desire and contentment for things increases, the desire and contentment in God decreases. However you want to look at it, one side of the coin or the other. Paul, like we read in in the last few weeks in Colossians, when we were in Colossians, he calls that idolatry. Where he says, put to death what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The first and foremost fight we have to fight is to fight to keep our complete trust, confidence, and contentment in Jesus Christ. We can often get caught up fighting battles that are real and sometimes unavoidable. But when we do, if our faith, our reliance isn't fully in Christ, our fight becomes our downfall, even if we, quote unquote, win. You could start with a fight for finances. Maybe you're not doing well and your fight for finances becomes a dependency on security and peace that money offers. Your faith is in those things, not in Christ alone. Yes, we all need to manage our money well and be good stewards, but we can go from a fight for security and going, man, I just need a little bit more to actually make it. I can barely put food and clothing on my, on my, on my body and on my table. I can barely do that, and I want to just get to that level where I can be a good steward and be generous, but then that becomes 
the lifestyle we need to maintain and live in and our focus goes from our contentment in Christ to our finances and material things. It could be a fight to keep a relationship. Maybe there's a relationship that you have that you're contending for and there's issues there. And what it does is becomes a dependency on them for happiness. If my relationship with them is good, then my world is good. But if my relationship with them is off, then everything's off. There's no joy. There's no contentment in anything because that relationship is the key to it. Maybe it's a fight to declare our own identity and it becomes defiance when God wants to shape you and change you and says, that actually isn't part of your identity. That's not, that's a part of the world. Your identity lies solely in me and I wanna refine you so that you look more and more like me. Maybe it's a fight with disciplines and they become a rigidity of a certain path and legalism that it must be this way. It must be, you must follow these disciplines as I follow these disciplines or else. Maybe it's a fight with, with others over secondary issues. And what that ends up becoming is a log in our eye to deal with a speck in somebody else's. We can pick good fights, but be left with a losing outcome. In Timothy's context, what Paul does is warn this young leader of what's happening in his church. There's a competing love and a desire vying for the affection of people's hearts, God or money. So what should a young leader do surrounded by people like this? What does Timothy do? What do we do when we're surrounded by people like this? Or even more to the point for some, for me, what if we recognize that we are people like that? What if we recognize we are people that are fighting a fight that isn't the fight that God has called us to? Hear this, because it's vital to fighting the good fight. But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Flee these things. Not flee and then fight them. Not separate yourself a little bit just so you can get some jabs in. Flee them. And the next thing he admonishes, it's fascinating because it's a work of how we influence people. You combat the false by casting a more compelling vision of what the future could be, of what is true. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share the storing of treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of which is truly life. When Paul says to charge them, in Paul's words, in, that, in, that, in the original language that he's talking about there, that was to convey a message from their superiors, from the authority. Think again, almost of the military terms. It's the messenger passing the message along and saying, hey, this is what the general said. The general said, you need to do this. It's not a suggestion. It's not actually an option, but the path to keep our faith in Christ alone. 
He's saying, if you have affluence, if you have wealth, if you are doing okay, if you are beyond having the shirt on your back and the food on your table, if you're beyond just those things, then pay attention. When we, no matter who our economic standing is, when we seek contentment in wealth, in the pursuit of happiness, material items that we are setting our hopes for, on the uncertainty of riches, we are charged to instead set our hope in God, to have faith in Him. We are to live open-handed where we are rich, where we have a lot of, to do good works. So the questions off for us are, what fights have you, you been trying to fight? What has consumed you that may be compromising your faith, your contentment in Christ, your trust and hope in God, where you can say, godliness with contentment is gain, is much gain. And my life is filled with godliness and contentment. And I just feel the fullness of Christ in me that the things of this world, they just grow strangely dim. My attachment to them is, is just, it's so, they mean nothing because I have Christ and I'm content. My faith in him, my faith in him is so deep because I know everything else fades. Flee the things that will easily entangle you. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Pursue the things that keep your reliance, your trust, and contentment in Christ Jesus alone. Paul ends this first, this first letter to Timothy with a word which is equally applicable for us today. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted in you. Guard what God has put in you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Guard what God has given you. Fight for what he has given you. Depend on him and on him alone. Avoid getting caught in the weeds of issues and focusing on things that will bring discontentment with God. And like Timothy, to fight this good fight of faith, to be with us. We need grace because we're not going to do it perfectly. We need God's grace for each other, for ourselves, as we fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that in you, when we have our life in you and we put our complete faith in you and not the things of this world, not money, not happiness, not the right house to live in, not the, the, the right friends to have, the right job to have, not the right clothes to wear. When we don't put our faith in any of those things, none of them are evil per se, but when we, when we don't have our faith in them and just in you, God, that is where contentment, truly is. 
where our godliness can really thrive. So God, I pray for each and every one of us where our eyes have been distracted from you, where our faith has been been wandering to other things and, and we put a reliance on other things. God, may you draw us back to you today. May we, may we in our lives do as we sang this morning, surrender all to you. God, so that you are, are the complete life that we need and we find our fullness in you. God, may our trust in you are struggling and we're contending just to make it. You're there with us. And the more we find life in that, the more we can be content as we work through things. We thank you, Jesus. Pray this in your name.